continuing, I should say, with our study about grace. Um, God's many-sided grace, just like a diamond. Grace has all kinds of uh, sides, different parts of it, things to uh, grow us, to teach us. And grace in its essence is that which takes all that God is in his heart, in his being, in his power, and brings it to all that I need and all that I am. It brings it up close. You've probably been in a place where you've seen something wonderful, and you've seen it from a little bit of a distance, and you say, oh, can you bring that over here? And you want it to be brought over so you can see it. You can touch it. You can experience it. And that's what grace is. It's that which God does to bring himself to us, to bring close to us. And we've looked at it in several different aspects, and we're going through three verses in Titus chapter 2. But basically, the training that grace brings is patching all the holes in our buckets. Uh, As you grow in the Lord and as you learn more about him, you find out holes that you have in your bucket that you never knew were holes. Um, And if you're in relationship with people and close to them and you say, do I have holes in my bucket? They'll probably point to some that you don't know you have or you don't want to admit to having. We have holes all over the place. Grace is there not just to save us, but to fill our, make it so our bucket can be filled, to plug the holes, so to speak. And we've looked at grace in a couple aspects so far, and we're going to pick up a third one today. We've looked at the grace of God appearing, bringing salvation for all people. This was saving grace. Grace moves in and enables me to be accepted into God's community. And if that's all that it did, it would have been enough. It would have been a beautiful thing to be part of God's community forever. But grace doesn't stop when you accept Jesus Christ and bring him into your life. Grace just gets going because there's so much more that God wants to do. And we looked at, for two weeks, on the training aspect, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. That's sanctifying grace. Grace moves in and enables me to increasingly enjoy God's community, to increase in my understanding of him. He's a triune God. He lives in community. He invites us into that, and in sanctifying grace, he gets me to a place where I'm more like him. I have more of a family resemblance so that this grace changes me, and I enjoy him more than I did before. We looked at one, that, as we looked at the verse, we looked at the declarations for restored living. There's some renouncing going on, and there's some choices to live a specific way that grace comes in and helps us with. And we said that they were effective heiress. And if you remember what that means, you don't have to. But basically, it means these are declarations that I'm serious about. They mean something. And when I choose to renounce ungodliness and the worldly desires, I make a kind of driving the stake in the ground and saying, this is how I will live. I'm going to renounce ungodliness. That's not having God as the source. Anything that is not of God, I'm renouncing that, and I'm going to renounce the worldly desires. Those were the desires that kind of defined ungodliness, all the different ways that I can wander from him. So once I do those things and I make the choice to live, we looked at four different things. And in all of these four things, they represent the four relationships that the fall corrupted, messed up. And in those things, as God brings his grace, he wants to restore everything in our heart and life that got messed up because of sin. 
So he wants to restore the broken relationships with others, with myself, with God, with the world around me. That's sanctifying grace. Today, we're going to move on, and we're going to look at sustaining grace. Grace moves in and enables me to continually enjoy God's community. This is a continual thing. That's the key word. Continually enjoy it. Perhaps you have in your life situations that just suck the life out of you, that steal your joy. Perhaps there's a person or people in your life that just suck, and my kids better not look at me right now, that suck the joy out of you, that suck the life out of you. Or maybe it's at work, that troublesome person. You just have things that drain you. And that draining can be very severe. It could be mild. But in all those situations, there's a way that God gives grace to continually rise above and in the midst of still enjoy him, still enjoy his community, even though around me things aren't going well. And we're going to look at the next verse in Titus Titus chapter 2, verse 13, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, for some of you, there's a bad word up there. It's waiting. Some of you, waiting is not your thing. You don't like waiting. And in fact, if we were all honest, I don't think any of us really do. You see, waiting isn't something you usually put on your resume as a strength. I'm really good at waiting. That doesn't really help you much. Not many of us would say, one of my hobbies in life is I love to wait. I just take that up. I enjoy it. Not many of us wake up with waiting on our to-do list. I can't wait to wait today. I hope that there's something that just makes me stand still and do nothing because I really enjoy doing that. You'll never see a course at Spring Arbor University or anything on the joys of waiting. You just don't see it as a class because waiting is just not a good thing most times. None of us are going to an event today or at any time and say, I hope when I get there I wait a long time. It's just not part of us. Waiting has a bad rap. We don't like it. We don't like to think about it. It steals from us, usually. If our waiting isn't purposeful, it takes joy away. It frustrates. And in some cases, if we're waiting long enough for something that doesn't come, we come bitter and angry. This waiting can't go on. And this waiting in this life for the coming of Jesus Christ, for him to come back, gets even more difficult when we mix with it some heart-wrenching disappointments that we've had. Untimely losses, shattered dreams, broken health, mentally, emotionally, or physically, wayward family members, financial problems, and the list could go on. You see, in this time from here to eternity... We are waiting, and in that waiting can come grief, heartache, and sorrow. Grace is here. God's grace comes to meet us in the waiting room, to give us what we need to continually enjoy all that God is. Grace inflates when this world wants to deflate. 
to take the joy and take the wind out of our sails. The word wait means to receive to oneself, accept favorably, welcome, look forward to. You see, this becomes a different kind of waiting. It's not waiting out of doing nothing. You're waiting for, for just something to take place, and I've got nothing to do with this time, so I'm just trying to kill this time until. This kind of waiting is looking forward to something. It has something to do while it is waiting for that great thing that's about to happen, that wonderful thing to happen. The word is used of Simeon in Luke chapter 2, and others who were anxiously expecting the Messiah. Simeon was so excited about Jesus coming. I'm looking for it. I'm waiting. I'm waiting. I'm waiting. And once he saw the child, he says, I can die now. It's okay. <laughs> it's over. I've seen that thing that I've been waiting and so excited about. That's what I've been living for. That's a different kind of waiting. It brings some eagerness into it, carries with it some expectant looking, some eagerness. I can't wait for it to happen. Now, in doing this waiting, there's different kinds of ways Christians wait for God to come back. And in one way, it's a waiting of inactivity. And I have a little picture of a, happens to do with deal with deer, but some people wait kind of like this. They're waiting, and they don't know what's going on. They don't see what it is at work. You know, it, it's happening around them. And this kind of person, and they're waiting, they go home, and they'll say, Honey, I didn't see anything today. I don't think there's any deer out in the woods. And it's because the waiting was the wrong kind of waiting. They didn't see what they could have seen. Now, I've had the privilege of hunting with the great hunter, Ron Stoskoff. Now, he's a real hunter. I hunt, okay? Do you see the difference? He, he usually gets something. I sometimes get something. And I'm, no jokes about Carl Musselman. They're forbidden. Please, nothing. <sighs> Sorry, buddy. <laughs> so anyway, he, he has this two-word saying that transforms my waiting. And it's any minute. Any minute. You see, I have been out there similar to that, where I've missed the biggest buck of my lifetime because I wasn't ready. And now he says, any minute, because I'll be out there and I can get bored a little bit. And if some of you hunt, you might relate to that. Or, oh, I'm cold and put, the, put it down and not be ready. And I keep thinking what he says all the time. Any minute. Any minute. That means you're going to wait differently. That means you're poised. That means you, you're, you're ready for it to happen. And you're looking for that, I'll call it, hope the Lord doesn't mind me uh, using this as an illustration for his, his words, the blessed hope. You're looking for that blessed hope to come out of the woods. And you're like, oh my goodness, it, any minute this could happen. I'm looking eagerly because when it does, I am ready. And this blessed hope makes me forget how cold I was, makes me forget all of that other stuff. And then you come out to look like this. <laughs> you didn't know Alice and I could really do this kind of stuff. I'm telling you. It's looking, waiting for the blessed hope. And it's like I was waiting and what I waited for really happened, really made a difference. It delivered. That's waiting in God's waiting room. Looking not for the big buck, 
but looking for the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. The first part of sustaining grace is a waiting and an eagerness for the return of the glory of the Lord. It's a beautiful thing. And in this verse, there's some drama going on behind the scenes that you don't pick up in our English Bibles. That word great, when it says for the glory of our great God and Savior, all of a sudden, uh, almost in a theater-type setting, this verse throws the people, throws them right into the theater of, of expectancy, of waiting, and all of the other gods that they worshipped. You see that word great when it's used. It's used in Acts 19.28 when it says great is Artemis of the Ephesians. It's used in Revelation, Babylon the Great. In the pagan culture, when they looked at their gods, they always chanted how great, great this God, great this God. So what Paul's doing here in qualifying who we're waiting for kind of throws all of the other gods into the arena. And when Christians wait, they wait for the one great God, the one who is greater than all the others, the one who is worth waiting for, the one when he comes will eclipse and go beyond all of the other gods that are out there. And the drama the verse unfolds with Jesus being center stage. You see the appearing here it's just one person. And it's a little confusing in some of your translations when it says the great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. It sounds like two people are showing up. But some of your translations will put a little comma right after Savior, Jesus Christ. Because in the original, the idea here is it's not two people coming. It's all about Jesus. Jesus is the one whose appearing helps sustain us in the present. So when he center stage, when he is the key one, he is the great God, the Savior, Jesus Christ. It is his appearing that changes everything. His glory brings who he is and what he can do to make it real in our life and we can experience it. I want to give you six quick things, and this is not the whole sermon. Six quick things about glory, and you could have the list go on and on. What does glory do to help me sustain right now? What kind of encouragement does it give me? Number one, glory relieves. Any of you in a situation, you just can't wait for it to be over. It's like, oh my goodness, I can't wait for relief. It's why heaven is called rest. Because the situation that, that I have in front of me all the time, day in and day out, when glory comes, I get relief. Not just relief, I get restoration. The years that the locusts have eaten will be restored. And some of us in our life, when we look at what's been eaten by outward circumstances, we feel like there's not much left. All of that, glory restores it. That's why I can be sustained in the presence because there's relief coming. There's a restoration coming. Not only that, there is an explanation coming. Do you have a situation you don't get? You frankly do not understand it. Or if you do understand it, you're at the 1%. You don't get it. When glory comes, we will understand. Now, I don't think we're going to understand it all. I, I don't think grace is going to be able to be fully comprehended when Jesus comes. But we're going to get it a whole lot better than we do right now. 
We're going to see pieces come together that in this life we don't get, we don't understand. They seem opposite. And, and, and when glory comes, there's going to be a measure of explanation. Now, I think we're going to be all eternity understanding it and still asking questions and still discovering and still wondering because even the angels of heaven, it said, that they've been with God since creation. Those angels strain their necks, the scriptures say, to learn about grace, to understand the redemption that we're experiencing. But there will be much more sense. It, it, it'll come into clearer and sharper focus. Glory heals. Those tears that the scriptures say God captures in his bottle will be taken out one at a time and healing will come. Hearts will be healed. The scriptures say he comes with healing on his wings. That's what glory does. That's what Jesus Christ will do. He rewards. He rewards as he comes. Everything done in faithfulness to him will be rewarded when the glory of Jesus Christ steps onto this earth. And number six, it eclipses all of the suffering, all of the pain that you feel right now will look like a flickering match compared to the burning sun of God. It will eclipse, it'll put it into perspective. This thing that consumes me right now, when I see the weight of glory, I am going to be, oh my goodness, that consumed me, now this consumes me. And all of the suffering will be put into a perspective that we will get. That's what the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, does. That is sustaining grace. But there's not just sustaining grace that, that gets something from what's coming. There's another kind of sustaining grace that helps me in the thing that's consuming me. You see, there's one thing to look forward and pull strength from that. But it's another thing to have something active going on right now that I can lay a hold of and be confident in. That will uphold me in the morning when I wake up. And this situation or this, these people or this hard thing is still in front of me. And what is that? And as we look at this second thing, we're going to go to 2 Corinthians chapter 12. You see, sometimes this life is so difficult, so hard. Have you ever just at the hearing of another tragedy or another hard thing in somebody's life just said, even so, Lord Jesus, you can come now. That'd be okay with me. You see, these sufferings that we face, these heartaches, often make us homesick for heaven. We want the glory. But in the absence of that happening, in the absence of all those things coming, there is a grace that comes and helps me when I feel so homesick, when I want deliverance here and now. Paul says, so to keep me from becoming conceited, because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. This is Paul's testimony, or his journey into sustaining grace. And there's a couple things I just want to glean from that passage so we can get to the meat of what God's doing in the midst of these situations. Is the first thing is that there's a plan in place to protect Paul's heart. I left a blank there because I want your name in it. There's a plan in place from God to protect your heart. And you just fill in the blank. You see, he is all about 
growing you in grace, growing you in Christ Jesus. And Paul sees it here and says, you know what? So to keep me from becoming conceited, something's going on behind the scenes. God's at work. He is doing something. There's a plan in place. Secondly, the thorn that Paul looked at was a gift and not something like an an infliction that was inflicted upon him. And that's a whole different perspective. You see, usually when tragedy or something bad happens in us, there's a little self-pity, there's a little bit of woe is me, there's a little bit of grief, and like, this thing has afflicted me. I've been inflicted with this. And Paul says, you know, this, this hard thing, this thorn, it was given to me. And that's the language of a gift, that there was something good about it, something wonderful about it. Thirdly, that which was meant to destroy was redeemed. That dart of Satan, that that messenger of Satan that was sent to harass, was turned by God in midstream into redemption. Like Joseph, you meant it to me for evil, God meant it for good. Now, I saw this happening at our house yesterday, this kind of redemption taking place. If you saw the WOW Camp videos, you saw the mud pit, Okay, we bought a thousand pounds of mucky dirt and mud, dumped it in there, and that was like the punishment place. That was the pit of despair. That was the place that you just don't want to go into the mud pit. But I have a very thrifty wife, and she didn't see a mud pit. She saw soil for the garden. So one bucket after bucket, she was in the mud pit, scooping out the soil, taking it, driving it to the garden, and dumping it in. That's redemption. Taking the pit and turning it into a garden. And I don't have that kind of patience to, to see that happening. But when it was all done, this beautiful black topsoil all over the garden, that's what sustaining grace does. It helps see that, that what God is doing in the hard things is getting into the mud pit one bucket at a time with us and taking it and saying, there's a garden coming. There's something you don't see in the plan. You may not understand it and don't get it, but rest assured it's happening. I take it one bucket at a time and transform it into a beautiful garden. God redeems it as it's happening. The thorn which was meant to destroy was redeemed. Thorns sometimes can be very severe and lifelong. You see, there's a theology out there that says that you accept God, you'll have nothing but health, wealth, and prosperity. All of your problems will go away. In fact, God's will for every believer is to never be sick. Paul, thorn in the flesh, did it go away? Some of you who know the verses that are coming? No. Paul have a faith problem? I don't think so. You see, sometimes these thorns that God uses to redeem don't go away. They stay for a redemptive purpose. They will stay and be used of God because there's so much mud in the pit and there's so much glory still to come that God's going to work through it continually and constantly. My holiness is more important to God than my happiness. Let that sink in. You see, those doctrines that would say God only ever wants good for you, 
It's like God's here to make me. Oh, no, he's not. He's here to make you holy. And that's what brings joy. That's what brings all of the good things our heart yearns for, is when we become like the God who redeemed us. And Paul seeing this happen is that this messenger of Satan is also a gift from God. And that's why it's a mystery. I don't understand how God does that. He takes what Satan would want to do to destroy us, yet he takes it to help build us and redeem us. And in his economy, in his way of loving, he can do that. I will never get that. I will never understand that, but I need to trust in it because it's true. My holiness is more important to God than my happiness because he is preparing me for his kingdom. He is growing me into the kind of person that he desires to be to give me the most joy that will ever happen. Now, I love this next part. Paul sees all this going on. Okay, this has been given to me so that I won't be conceited and God's at work and I get it. But you know what he says next? Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. You see, sometimes our understanding, we don't know fully what God's doing. We don't always see the purpose. We don't always see the exact, if we could see it, if I could see it, if I could get it, it would make it so much easier. But here Paul prays three different times. And these times that he prayed, in the original language, he's praying in a very specific way. He's praying that this once for all, would be delivered from me, so I'd never experience it again. Now, there were probably times that he did pray in between, saying, relief today, Lord, help me deal with, help me in the midst of it. But at least on three separate occasions, he went to the Lord, and he said, Lord, please, I beg you, take this away once and for all. Get it out of here. And I don't know whether he's thinking he's at the end of his rope or if he's thinking he could minister better if it wasn't there. But whatever was going on in his limited understanding, he prayed, Lord, please take it away. And in this, he prayed according to the best of his understanding. But don't lean on your own understanding. You see, some of us trip and fall right here. When we don't get God, when we don't understand what he's doing, some of us get back, get dejected, because we really want God to approve his will with us first before we accept it. It's like, you know, if I could just understand. God says, no, you don't need to understand. Job didn't understand. He didn't get and see all that was at work. He was just contented with who God was. And that's what God says. If you knew me, if you really trusted in who I am, you wouldn't realize you don't need to understand. Now, some of us have a really hard time to do something that you don't understand. You usually want to know why you're doing it. Any of you people like that? If I just said to you, I want you to go outside and jump up and down three times in the parking lot and then hop around a car. Any takers say, oh, cool, I'll go do that. All right, Scotty, yeah, I know he would. But, but most of us would say, why? Because I said so. Why? It's not enough. You see, acceptance for most of us depends on understanding. Now, if I told you if you do that, you get $100, oh, I get it now. I will accept it, and therefore I will be okay with it. And that's a big tripper in the Christian life. You will not understand the adversity, the pain, the situations that you're in. 
And if you're waiting for a full explanation from God before you can move forward and for you not to be bitter and not to be angry or at least frustrated, you'll never get there. Sometimes God gives glimpses. And there may be times when I look at past tragedies of my life and I can see 20 years later, I get that now. I see how this piece fit. But you know what? It's still through a glass darkly. We, we don't get it. And God says, I'm not really intending to explain myself to you. I don't need to if you really trust and believe I am who I am. And I will do what I said. That will be enough for you. You will be able to move forward in the promise and the person of who God is. Pray according to the best of, of your understanding. Lord, please take this. Please. But don't lean on your understanding as a test or, or the thing that has to happen before you're okay with God, before you get rid of the bitterness and angry. Don't, don't wait for that. Lean on something else. And this is what we have in the next verse. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. There's a great wordplay going on here in the original language. The first verse, three times I pleaded that he would once for all take it from me. Behind this verse, what he said to me has the exact same construction. It really says, but he said to me once and for all. And I love that. It's like, you know what? I came to God three times. I said, please take it forever. And God comes back and says, once and for all, I'm telling you this. My grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. Some beautiful, beautiful promises. But he said to me, once and for all, get this. Understand this, because this is the promise from, from the beginning of your Christian life to the day that you die, you need to hang on to. You need to get this, because you will not understand what happened and how the beginning goes with the end and what happens in the middle, but this you can get. You can understand God and his working in his grace. The second, but he said to me, my grace. So whatever's coming belongs to God. It's the, his origin. It comes from who he is. It's his grace. So whatever is coming to give us what we need comes from God himself. It has a divine source. It's not like he just went off, got an off-the-shelf remedy. I bought this at the drugstore. Take two of these and call me in the morning. He says, no, no. The remedy that I'm giving you is homegrown. It's homegrown from my own kitchen, from my own heart. And I'm bringing it to you because it's tested, it's true, and it's worked. And he says, it's my grace is sufficient. Grace represents the sum total of who God is in his power, in his presence, in his purity. And he says, my grace to you is enough. You don't need to understand you don't need to get me. You just need to trust me. It's sufficient for you right now in the chair in which you sit, the life that you live, the bed you go to sleep in and wake up in the morning. God says, my grace is sufficient 24-7. You need nothing else. 
I can sustain you in the midst of all that. To help this stick, I got three peas for you to take away. Three peas in a pod. Isn't that cute? First P, trust in his person, especially when you don't understand. There are times, yes, we do understand what's happening. And maybe it was a little bit of correction that God's giving you and you know in your heart that this is happening because I've been disobedient. You understand a little bit. There are times when tragedy strikes, when grief comes, you will have no understanding whatsoever. Trust in his person. He is good. He is great. He is for you. Know that from the bottom of who you are. Because if you're waiting for understanding to live your Christian life, to bring healing to your heart, you're going to be waiting for a long time. But if you trust in his person as somebody who has your back all the time, as somebody who will never leave you or forsake you, somebody who will never turn their back on you, and who ever only does things for your good, if you really, really knew that, you can trust in his person. Some of you have had surgeries at different times. How many of you fully understood everything the surgeon was going to do and could do it yourself if you were awake? You put a lot of trust in a person. You don't understand it. You just come to believe that the knife that's coming isn't here to stab me. It's here to heal me. And when you see God as the great surgeon, you know that you can go out because he's at work. You trust in his person. Be confident in his power. You people who love to rest in your own strength and figure it all out yourselves and tough, guess what? You have no strength. You have no strength that can really do anything of eternal value. You see, in the midst of all of this, the sustaining grace comes in and says, be confident in his power, especially when you are at the end of your rope, when you have nothing else to cling to, and you feel like you're going under. His person, his power, rests upon you. His power is available through his sustaining grace. And finally, rest in his presence, especially when you feel alone, abandoned, and forgotten. Rest in his presence. There's a beautiful picture that I remember about rest and his presence. When I was a little kid, my mom would make the bed sometimes. And sometimes she'd forget, and it would happen right before bedtime. And, and she'd take the sheet, and she'd flip it up in the air, and I would get to be on the bed. And this big sheet would come down on top of me and, like, cover me. And that was, like, so much fun. I felt so secure. I felt so happy. And she would throw it up again and bring it down, and it would come down on top of me. I still have Alice do that for me. It's great. And it's whoosh, up and down, up and down. And I'm like... This is like a canopy. When the scriptures say his, his strength will rest upon you, that word rest means cover you like a tent. 
to give you that peace and security. And that's all I can think about. Cover me like a tent. Yes, the sheet comes up and it comes down again. It's like this billowing of protection. And I just felt so secure and so safe. And that's what God says when this grace comes to you in my presence. It, it's a resting upon you like a tent. And it covers you completely. That is the presence that we rest in. To know that God has got me. He's covering me completely. His person is completely good and righteous. He, he's not mistaken in what he's doing. He's not unsure of how to pull all this off. He knows it intimately. And he has the power to make it happen completely. One of the key truths of the Christian life is that many of the blessings that we experience come through transformation, not substitution. When Paul prayed, he was asking God for a substitution. Give me health instead of sickness. Deliverance instead of pain and weakness. God can meet the need by substitution, and he does sometimes. Other times, he meets your needs through transformation, by changing you, by growing you. He does not remove the affliction, but he gives grace so that the affliction works for us and not against us. That is redemption. That is who God is. And the effect that this has on a heart and life, therefore I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ, his bedsheet, will rest upon me for the sake of Christ. Then I am content with weaknesses insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Wow. Three quick things. You get a divine outlook because of God's grace. Boasting, gladly, and content. How many of those words do you apply to your suffering and your hardship today? I'm glad about this. I'm boasting about this. I'm content when you see all that God is at work doing, grace does that for you. It makes it so that you can continually enjoy his presence. It gives you a divine rest, the tent spread over. A place of joy, a place where I can rest in him. Although the world says my situation should make me totally restless, should, should destroy me. And finally, a divine strength to continually enjoy God's community. That is sustaining grace. So that no matter where I am or what is happening, I will not have my joy of the Lord stolen. I will not have the life sucked out of me because God, his joy, his strength rests upon me. Therefore, I will rejoice. Grace. God's sustaining grace. Father, I thank you that grace isn't just there to save us. It's there to keep us together. It's to hold us together. And Father, I pray that for all of us that are going through hard times, difficult times, we have a thorn and we see it and we know it. 